0: Good evening. I'm excited to be here tonight. Let's uh, open up with uh, prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, thankful again for being here tonight and uh, with this congregation that I am uh, so blessed by and thankful for. Uh, pray, Lord, that uh, your spirit would be leading in tonight's teaching and that it would be um, directly from you, all from you. And uh, may we learn, Lord, from uh, the history and uh, Carry on the uh, the torchlight of your word, Lord, and we ask these things in your glorious name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be going over Reformation theology. So Daniel and, and Chris, they did a great job in, in teaching the, the history of the church and the church fathers, its teachers, its belief, uh, the theology, different doctrines such as Christology, uh, some false methods that were used, and the criteria of the canon. Uh, I thought it was Interesting when it was mentioned how Christians were viewed as as atheists, and then Rome's eventual grip on Christianity. You know they they had a lot to unpack in such a little bit amount of time. So thank you guys for that. And so we get to the Reformation, which started on October 31st, 1517, by Martin Luther. And so what it was is the, the Reformation also known as Protestant Reformation. It was a, a protest against the Catholic Church for reasons that we'll be going over. But it's important to build a little context and background right now before that time. So, so because it was a prelude at various places at various times of those faithful to God's word, the Holy Spirit being the source. So we're going to go 345 years before the Reformation, the Waldensians. So most histories trace their origin to Peter Waldo, who was a wealthy merchant in Lyons, France, who renounced his wealth and gave his money away and and committed to living a life of voluntary poverty. And so in 1176, Waldo became a traveling preacher. Others joined his group and they became known as the poor men of Lyons. So in the beginning, the Waldensians were simply a group of traveling lay preachers And as time went on, they faced severe persecution from the Roman Catholic Church because they did not give them permission to do so. The church didn't. And so this persecution went on even after the Reformation. And they eventually broke from Catholicism, joining the Protestants. The Waldensians loved the Bible. They insisted that the Bible be their sole authority. And at the same time, they publicly uh, criticized the corruption of the Roman Catholic clergy they rejected many of the superstitious traditions that Catholicism uh, taught, like prayers for the dead and, and purgatory. They believed the holy scriptures alone are sufficient to guide men to salvation. And the movement quickly spread rapidly. So they could be seen as a launching uh, the, the pre-Reformation movement. And they're properly remembered for their bravery during a, a dark period of history, and their perseverance under the brutality of the Roman Church, and their commitment to biblical authority. So now we're going 144 years before the Reformation. A familiar name here, John Wycliffe. He started his objection to the Roman Church in 1373. So he began speaking and writing against the Church's errors, teaching that salvation was only available through the suffering of Christ, not the power of the Church. So Wycliffe questioned the authority of the Pope and emphasized the authority of Scripture. He said, Holy Scripture is the preeminent authority for every Christian. It alone is the supreme law that is to rule church, state, and Christian life without traditions and statutes. His followers were called the Lollards. They also believed that the the primary duty of the priest should be to preach and that every person should have access to the Bible in their own language. They also believed that the primary duty, Oh, no, excuse me, they, they also believe that the, uh, in the absolute sufficiency of Scripture, saying that everything necessary is found in Scripture, and what is not there is unnecessary. And Wycliffe wrote, it is evident from the faith of Scripture, which one must believe, that a person can acquire nothing superior, nor more certain, or efficacious. So Wycliffe and the Lollards were responsible for an English translation of the Bible that was completed in 1382... And the the translation followed the Latin so closely that the meaning in English was often obscured. So a follower, John Purvey, published a revision that was much more readable in English. And this Bible was a dominant English Bible up until Tyndale's translation came. So keep in mind, though, that when the Bible was being translated by Wycliffe and his colleagues, it had to be copied and distributed uh, painstakingly by hand because it was before the printing press was invented in 1440. And despite these challenges, hundreds of the Bible were produced and distributed to Wycliffe's troop of pastors, and they preached across England as the Word of God made its way to the people. So in response, the Catholic Church condemned the Wycliffe Bible. They destroyed as many as they could. Anyone caught reading it was subject to heavy fines. In fact, some of Wycliffe's supporters were burned at the stake with the Wycliffe Bible hung around their necks. But this this prohibition seemed to have only made people more interested in reading the banned book. So not only did the, the English people become more interested in the Bible, but their desire for literacy also increased. So at the Council of Constance, Wycliffe's writings were also condemned. His body was exhumed, bones were dug up, burned, and then the ashes were scattered in a river. See, the impact of Wycliffe's teaching and his translation of the Bible into the vernacular, that is the everyday language, is why he's referred to as the morning star of the Reformation, signaling the soon coming of daylight. The Lollard's influence spread as far as Bohemia and to John Huss, who in turn influenced Martin Luther, which leads us to our next person here. In 115 years before the Reformation, we have John Huss. He was a Roman Catholic priest in Bohemia who became a pre- Reformation reformer of the church, uh, though not Protestant. The more he studied the Bible, the more he noticed a sharp divergence between what the Bible teaches and what the Roman church practiced. Reading the writings of Wycliffe further influenced him in an anti Catholic direction. The conflict between Huss and the Roman Catholic Church intensified when Pope John XXIII authorized the selling of indulgences to raise money for a military conflict against a rival pope claimant. So in 1402, Huss began preaching in Prague, demanding the reformation of the church, preaching against the papacy itself, emphasizing the authority of the Bible and the fact that Christ alone is the head of the church. Huss was excommunicated and in 1412 was commanded by Roman Emperor Sigismund to come to Constance, Germany and appear before the council. He was guaranteed safe passage, so he went, but when he arrived, he was arrested and imprisoned. A mock trial occurred, and when Huss refused to recant his teachings, he was burned at the stake as a heretic. It's said that his last words were, Lord Jesus, I endure this cruel death for you. I ask you to have mercy on my enemies. The followers of John Huss were known as the Hussites. They continued, expanded, and intensified the re- rebellion against the Roman Church, and the popes pronounced a series of crusades against them, and it became known as the Hussite Wars. The writings of John Huss against the selling of indulgences influenced Martin Luther and other early Protestant reformers. So he set a tremendous example of refusing to submit to any authority that violates the teaching of Scripture. And so in that example, he's to be remembered and followed. So now we're going into the Reformation, but before we talk about that specifically, it's important to understand the Catholic claim of apostolic succession. See, this doctrine says that the line of Roman Catholic popes extends through the centuries, all the way from the Apostle Peter to the current Pope today. So, this unbroken chain of authority makes the Roman Church the only true church and gives the Pope preeminence over all churches everywhere. Therefore, the Catholic Church and the authority of the papacy determined what the people were to believe. And because of their belief in apostolic succession and the infallibility of the Pope, Catholics placed church teaching and tradition. On a level equal to Scripture itself. So they have this three legged stool. You have the infallible Pope, Scripture, and the oral traditions, which they say is all an equal balance of authority. Our response to that, though, is that we would argue that the Catholic Church is actually sola ecclesia. They're the church alone because they actually have all the authority over Scripture and its traditions. It's one of the major differences between Catholics and Protestants. One of the main foundational issues leading to the Reformation. So after this buildup, after this precursor, there were other factors that were involved. There was a the political factor. So Islam conquered Constantinople. There was a creation of national states and free cities in Europe that challenged the political authority of Rome. Education evoked by the Renaissance opened men's minds to the study of classical literature in addition to the Bible. Erasmus was involved in this movement and produced a Greek edition of the New Testament. Then you had the advent of the printing press. Social and economic factors birthed the new middle class that resisted the flow of money to Rome. And then the religious factor. So having access to the New Testament, the reformers and Christian humanists discovered a discrepancy between the church in the New Testament and the practices of the Church of Rome, such as corruption from the priesthood to the papacy, simony, which was by bribery, people would buy church office positions, the sale of indulgences, which meant a person could pay for sins beforehand and be assured of the forgiveness of sins. Now we're gonna go over four of the main Reformation leaders. So Martin Luther, he was a reformer in Germany, A Catholic monk, the the catalyst of the Protestant Reformation, he saw the Catholic Church corruption and through the study of the Bible, and particularly Romans 1.17, which says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther came to a knowledge of justification by faith alone. This formed the foundation of his his theology and opposition to the Catholic Church. So on October 31st, 1517, he nailed his 95 thesis on the door of the Church of Wittenberg, Germany. And so what these statements outlined were his disagreements with the Catholic Church. Luther stressed sola scriptura. The scriptures alone are the authority for the people, not the Church and its councils. And then we have John Calvin. He was born in France, a reformer in France, and later on in Switzerland, he would teach the French-speaking population in 1534, he identified himself with Protestantism and was forced to leave France. And in 1536, he solidified what he had learned into the institutes of the Christian religion, which was a defense of the reformers from a theological standpoint. In 1541, he went back to Geneva, Switzerland, to remain there the rest of his life as a pastor preaching and lecturing daily. He wrote commentaries in all books of the Bible except Revelation. He built a theology on the sovereignty of God and helped build what's known as Calvinism. Then we have Ulrich Zwingli. He was a reformer in Switzerland, served the German-speaking people of Switzerland. He entered the Roman Catholic priesthood from 1506 to 1518. And during the latter days of this period, while studying Erasmus's Greek New Testament, Zwingli was converted to Christ and to Reformation views. So in 1519, while pastor of the Great Cathedral Church in Zurich, he began to preach expository sermons, and to denounce Roman Catholic practices. He believed in salvation by faith. And then we have William Tyndale. He was a reformer in England who is sometimes called the captain of the army of reformers due to his pioneering work to advance the truth of, the, of, uh, of God in the face of much resistance. Uh, he was a scholar fluent in eight different languages. is best known today for his English translation of the Bible. So he's influenced by John Wycliffe, Erasmus, Martin Luther. And so Wycliffe and Luther, uh, so like Wycliffe and Luther, Tyndale was convinced that the way to God was through his word. So he published his first theological work, The Parable of the Wicked Mammon. And in May 1528, which focused on the very heart of the gospel, namely justification by faith alone and Christ alone, Tyndale proclaimed that faith alone saves and saves True faith produces a living obedience to God's word. So Luther and Tyndale believed that scripture should be available to everyone. So 150 years after Wycliffe, Luther made a German translation of the Bible, and Tyndale began to translate the New Testament into English. But for their translations, they bypassed the Latin Vulgate. Instead, what they used was Erasmus's Greek and Hebrew texts as their source. So for his work on the English Bible, Tyndale drew the anger of the Roman Catholic Church, which, again, taught that they alone were the conservators and interpreters of God's word, and that the lay people had no business reading it for themselves. Tyndale famously said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spared my life for many years, I will cause the boy that drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you. The elusive Tyndale fled assassination and arrest attempts for 12 years, and In 1535, he was betrayed by Henry Phillips, who faked a friendship with him. He was imprisoned for the crime of producing a Bible in the vernacular. On October 6, 1536, Tyndale was led outside to a stake where the guards bound his feet to the bottom of a cross, a chain around his neck, pulling him tightly to the beam of wood. The wood encased around him was sprinkled with gunpowder around the brush. The sentence was carried out by the executioner. Strangling Tyndale with the chain news. After he suffocated and died, the brush was then lit on fire, the gunpowder exploded, blowing up the corpse, and the remains were burned in the fire. His last words were reported to be: Lord, open the King of England's eyes. His dying prayer was answered. 1539, every parish in England was required to have a copy of the Bible in English and to make it available to every parishioner. Over the next 70 years, two million copies of the Bible were sold in England. And when the, translator of, when the translators of the King James Version produced their Bible in 1611, they relied heavily on Tyndale's wording. In fact, about 90% of the phrasing of the KJV matches Tyndale's. Tyndale's legacy is the Bible he gave to the English-speaking people. His translation is the first English in English to come directly from Hebrew and Greek texts and was also the first English translation to be mass-produced as a result of advances in the art of printing. So Tyndale and others like him, who did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death, helped pave the way for our having a Bible today. So now we're going to briefly take a look at the doctrines and beliefs of these reformers, but then I want to present to you what the main issue is, and... A defense for our position I feel that if we're going to talk about the Reformation it'd be good to be equipped to know how to answer a lot of Catholic arguments against Protestants so I don't know if they if they have the chart theology of the reformers there we go so I just want to look at the last two baptism and the Lord's Supper so with baptism Luther believed that infants should be baptized. Calvin said it was only for believers, but children would be baptized to show that they're part of the covenant. Zwingli believed that infants should be baptized. And then a group, the Anabaptists, they said, no, this is for believers only. So infant baptism was rejected. And then in regards to the Lord's Supper, Luther believed Christ was present in a real sense in communion. So he didn't believe in transubstantiation, but he believed in consubstantiation, meaning he believed Christ was spiritually in the elements. And then Calvin, he believed that it communicated grace and that believer partakes of Christ through faith. Zwingli, he held to the memorial view, so that that the bread is a symbol of Christ and it wasn't his literal body. And so all throughout these different doctrines, you have variations. In fact, that one in the Lord's Supper, Luther and Zwingli, actually, uh, Luther decided not to be friends with Zwingli anymore because of it. You know, that's how dedicated they were to this. But what I want to pay attention to is the very top one, Scripture. You see, though we appreciate and are thankful for the Reformers, it doesn't mean that we have to agree with them on all the non-essential beliefs, all the doctrines that they held to. But we, we should be able to defend what we, what we believe, what views that we hold biblically, right? Not because we feel a certain way about something. So we do agree with them, though, by necessity of being a Protestant on the crux of the issue, which is, again, sola scriptura. See, Reformed theology teaches that the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God, sufficient in all matters of faith and practice. So Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin had this in common. So the Catholic Church will accuse Protestants, saying, hey, look, your departure has caused a lot of anarchy, a lot of disagreements, uh, different doctrines, and, and many denominations. So isn't that enough to prove that the true Church is in Rome? And so although it's true that there are disagreements on doctrines, it is because of incorrect use of sola scriptura, not because of sola scriptura. And at the heart of the Protestant Reformation lay four basic questions. How is a person saved? Where does religious authority lie? What is the Church? What is the essence of Christian living? And so in answering these questions, Protestant reformers developed what would be known as the five solas. Sola Scriptura, which again is scripture alone. Sola Gratia, which is salvation by grace alone. Sola Fide, salvation by faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Salvation is found in Christ Jesus alone, no one and nothing else can save. And then Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. So these five important doctrines, which I encourage you to, to research and read and, and look into, are the reason for the uh, Protestant Reformation. They're, they're at the heart of the Reformers' call for the church to return to biblical teaching. The five solas are just as important today in evaluating a church and its teachings as they were in the 16th century. So then the question arises, well, why can't we just work together, Protestants and Catholics, Right? It's also known as ecumenism. I believe uh, Philip de Corsi answers this well in his book, Standing Room Only. He says, To the essential truths and core beliefs of the gospel, they add and append doctrines which subtract from Christ and his sufficiency. To the Bible, they add tradition. To the headship of Christ over the church, they add the pope. To justification, they add sanctification, making them both the same. To Christ as our high priest, they add Mary and the saints. To grace they add merit, to faith they add works, to heaven and hell they add purgatory, to one atoning sacrifice of Christ they add the Mass, to the throne of grace they add the confessional box. The Judaizers of Paul's day were mere amateurs compared to the Romanists of today in supplementing and supplanting the gospel of Jesus Christ with a mongrel gospel. See, any show of unity with Rome will undoubtedly come with a sacrifice of truth. Divided we must stand, for if united, gospel truth will fall. In Galatians 2, Paul did not assiduously respect Peter's right to fraternize with the Judaizers and their false gospel. Paul was more concerned about the integrity of the gospel and the purity of the church than a patchwork coalition with the Judaizers for the benefit of the nation. Thus, the Protestant war with Rome is a battle over the Bible. The Reformation was a recovery of the Bible, elevating its place and power within the church. The Reformers realized that this message of the Bible was clear and its truth sufficient. They understood the importance for putting the Bible into the common vernacular. God's Word is not a dark and mysterious book, but as Peter says, a light shining in a dark place, Second Peter 1.9. God intended mothers and fathers to teach it to their children, Deuteronomy 6, verses 7 through 9. Its message is so plain a child can find the path to Christ through it, 2 Timothy 3.15. How wrong can the Catholic Church be? So then there's the accusation where they say, hey, look, your soul is scriptura, but you don't follow the oral traditions. You know, it's in the Bible, and you don't do that. And so what I want to do is make a case uh, for the scriptures, from the scriptures, and then a response to this this oral tradition that they speak of. In Holy Scripture, Volume One by King, he says the Scriptures alone provide us with the only objective link to an infallible record of the ultimate purpose of revelation, as it pertains to the plan of God and the history of redemption. This is why Luke is careful to record that Jesus, after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, appealed to the testimony of God's revelation. Through the prophets to correct the disciples' mistaken view concerning the hope of Israel. So we read about this in Luke twenty four, and, and what is their response in Luke twenty four, thirty-two? They said, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. So that evening Jesus appeared again to those two whom at that time were gathered with the eleven, and Jesus explained the purpose of his death and resurrection against the background of God's revelation. Peter uses the same ingredient. In Acts 10.43, it says to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Paul does it too, again, in Acts 17.2, where it says, reason from the scriptures, saying this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Apollos, in Acts 18.28, says powerfully refuted the Jews in public. Showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Peter mentions in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 through 21, he says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So scripture is not the opinions of the prophets, but the very words of God. So it's evident, it's clear. That Jesus and his disciples and, and the Jewish people in general presuppose scripture to be not only the infallible record of God's revelatory acts but the authoritative objective link between prophecy and its fulfillment so the constant appeal the, the constant citing by Christ and his apostles to the scriptures as the standard of authoritative truth demonstrates the biblical link between scripture and special revelation Scripture being the only inherent record of special revelation. So, if in their day, there existed another God-given authority, such as extra-biblical tradition, it's failed to surface. There's no such thing as it is traditioned or tradition says. It's most noticeably and clearly absent in the gospel records. So, the only reliable source of revelation from God that all theology is subject to is the foundation of Scripture. There's no other revelation apart from Scripture that God pronounces to be, as Raul stated earlier, God-breathed, profitable, to make the man of God complete, therefore thoroughly equipped for every good work. Regardless of the assertion of Roman apologists, when the dust settles, there's one question that they can't answer. And it goes like this, can you name one, just one, oral, extra-biblical tradition, demonstratively traceable, to the apostolic age which is necessary for the faith and practice of the church of Jesus. No verifiable example has been or can be offered. So we affirm with the Apostle Paul in Acts 24.14 that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. But what about the oral tradition in Thessalonians. How do we answer that? In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, it says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So again, the Roman apologists will say that here you have commanding proof to pass on the oral tradition as a separate tradition, separate from the written, that this is to be passed on through the church down through the ages. But is that what this verse is teaching? No. No, in context, this is a command to stand firm and hold fast to a single body of traditions already delivered to the believers. See, there's nothing future about this passage at all. Does he say to stand firm and hold fast to traditions that will be delivered? No. No, they already have been. To the entire church, not just to the bishops. But to everyone in the church at Thessalonica. So, the traditions of which Paul speaks are not traditions about Mary or, or papal infallibility. Instead, the traditions Paul's talking about in context is simply the gospel message itself. And there's more to it that I can't get into right now, but Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 14 through 15 that the scriptures were able to make us wise unto salvation. He never indicated that something else was going to be needed not some oral tradition, and send all scripture that is able to make you wise into salvation, he says, what is it? He said, it's God breathed, which makes it what? Sufficient. It's able to thoroughly equip the man of God. So, so if I say and ask you, or tell you that I can and thoroughly equip you, you guys, for the, for the men's camp out, what am I saying? Well, I'm saying that I'm sufficient. To supply you with that to equip you for that for the task at hand and so Paul says the scriptures the God-breathed scriptures are sufficient to equip the man of God for every good work and we believe that so the content of the oral teaching again was the gospel you know that is within the context of both epistles to the Thessalonians that we have and the oral teachings that are recorded in Acts this is, this is the standard of sound doctrine. And so when it comes to hermeneutics, their interpretation of 2 Thessalonians has no weight to it. It's bad exegesis. If anything, it's eisegesis. They're reading into the text. And that's not to go without saying, you know, their, their view on the book of Revelation, uh, how they interpret um, uh, the church and, and Israel with, with replacement theology but I find it interesting that you're not going to find an infallible interpretation of the Bible by the infallible Pope and magisterium. No infallible commentary exists. And so to me, that's suspicious. And so when they ask, you know, well, well who has the authority to do that? Who has the authority to, um, to, to, to separate from us? Because what they'll say is, you know, the Catholic Church argues that if it weren't for the Catholic Church, you wouldn't even have a Bible right now. So you need an infallible authority to tell you which books belong in the canon of Scripture, especially the New Testament. And so that's why you need the oral traditions as well. And so in answering the question, there's a question to, to answer them with. It's known as the white question. And he says, if Scripture is decided by the infallible Church then how is it that a believing Jew 50 years before Jesus would know that the book of 2 Chronicles and Isaiah are scripture, part of the Old Testament canon? I'd also like to point out that the psalmist, for example, in Psalm 119, knew what the word of God was hundreds of years before there was ever a Christian church in Rome. He didn't require the Roman Catholic Church to know what the word of God was, so why do we? The psalmist doesn't cite oral traditions. You're not going to find a psalm, praise the oral traditions. Psalm 119 is in praise of the written word of God. I'm going to be loosely quoting from Scripture alone. It's a great book by James White. He discusses this. And when it comes to the canon of Scripture, again, Rome's claim is saying, hey, look, we we made the canon. We put the books in there. We're giving it to you. So why do you separate from us when we're the ones with it? In fact, you have an incomplete Bible. You don't even have the Deuterocanicals, the Apocrypha in there. And so right now, I want to show you how the New Testament refers to itself as scriptural canon. Okay, So Peter does this in 2 Peter three fifteen through 16. we We're going to read 16. It says, there are some things in them, and this is a reference to, to Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter acknowledges that the Spirit is once again bringing scripture into existence. You know Paul references Luke's gospel as scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. And so it follows that the apostles knew God was at work in providing his church with the new covenant scriptures, which would share in the high divine nature inherent within those of the old covenant. In Matthew 22.31b, Jesus said to the Sadducees, have you not read what was said to you by God? This sounds odd because naturally we would expect the next phrase to be what was written to you. When we see what was said to you, we would expect to have heard it in the context of did you not hear? But Jesus mixes these terms. He says, have you not read what was said to you by God? He is enunciating the same truth that we saw in Paul. That scripture is God speaking. Scripture alone is inspired, not those whom God used to write it. So when we're talking about the canon of scripture, we need to recognize it as the yanostos, that's again God breathed. God is its origin. The nature of scripture determines the canon of scripture. Without the act of inspiration, there wouldn't be a canon. So to understand the canon, we need to have a, a divine view of it. So the canon is an artifact of revelation. It's not an object of revelation itself. It comes into existence as a byproduct of the action itself. So God inspires and the canon expresses the limitation of that action. Okay? It is known infallibly to God. So that means it's God's idea. You know, God has a purpose for Scripture, and he himself has decided which books are included in that purpose. So here's a simple way to view it. So the canon has two aspects to it that is crucial for us to understand. So the the thesis that White uh, explains is the first aspect is canon one. So follow me with this. If you get this, you'll you'll be able to understand the rest of what's being said here. So canon one is is the divine knowledge and understanding of the canon. Okay. Canon two, this is the second aspect, canon two is a human knowledge and understanding of the canon. Okay, so just like when an author writes a book, there automatically becomes a canon. If the author writes more books, then the canon is expanded. Only the author has infallible knowledge of the canon of the the works that they've produced. Whether the author used anyone in the writing process or, or borrowed from someone else, only the author would know. So when we consider this, we see that the Scripture is a result of God's freely chosen act of inspiration. Once God's Spirit moved upon the first author of Scripture, Canon 1 came into existence. Before anyone else could know what God had done, which, again, human knowledge would be Canon 2, God infallibly knew the current state and content of Canon 1. So with each passing phase of revelation in Scripture, Canon 1 remained current, infallible, fully reflective of the ongoing work of inscripturation. So understanding the nature of Canon 2, which is again the human knowledge of Canon, right, helps us realize that it is Scripture, not man's knowledge of the Canon, that is inspired. Canon 1 exists exists perfectly in God's mind. We can see that the clarity and knowledge of Canon 2 is dependent not on human beings, not on councils, not on churches or anything else in this world, but instead upon... God's purposes in giving us the inspired scriptures in the first place. If we go to Isaiah 55, verse 11, it says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the promise of this passage and its immediate application is in reference to the prophetic word he gave concerning the deliverance of Israel. But the entire passage goes far beyond this context. You see, what is true of his word as prophecy is likewise true of his word in the wider category of Scripture. The Lord Jesus may have been reflecting this theme of Scripture's infallible power in fulfilling God's purpose when he said to the Jews, and Scripture cannot be broken. He did not have to prove his point. It was a given. It is part of the nature of God's word to be unfailing, trustworthy, and reliable. So one reason God gave a scripture, which is also vitally important to the canon, is in Romans 15.4. It says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. It wasn't just meant for those in the earlier times, as it says, but for our instruction. So the recognition of the canon's actual, actual nature helps us to fully appreciate the church's role without falling into error on the subject. So the church was used as an instrument for establishing canon too. But the notion that the entire canon is defined infallibly by the church and that no one can truly know the canon without the church is an error. And so we, we recognize that error. So the result of these considerations is clear. Those who think we must invest a divine attribute of infallibility in the church to gain a functional canon have misunderstood the the canon's nature as an artifact of revelation canon one the nature of man's knowledge of that work canon two and the purpose and promise of god to the giving of scripture and the nature of the church itself scripture sufficient god's word sufficient for our lives and the gospel message obtaining eternal salvation through christ so how can we know the canon without the church You know, the church was the means, but not the source. God is the source. The Holy Spirit guided the canon from canon 1 to canon 2, and so we have the exact canon of scriptures that he wants us to have. So where does the debate end? Scripture alone. God authenticates himself and does so by his word. The Roman church can't comprehend how one can stand on sola scriptura. We Protestants look to a different source for our certainty. We, we don't look to our human organ, organization that is divinely guided. We look much higher to the very plan and purpose of God. We get the great privilege of being used of God in many ways for his work, and he has chosen to use the church instrumentally, and the outcome of his purpose is not left relying upon the instruments he uses, but on him alone. We have a higher view of God. The real issue... Is does the church submit to the canon of scripture or does the canon of of scripture submit to the church? Kruger gives this analogy. He says the role of the church in the Protestant level versus the Catholic level is like a thermostat and thermometer. He says both have to deal with the temperature in the room, right? One determines it and one responds to it. So the, the Catholic view of church is like a thermostat, it determines the canon. The Protestant view of church is like a thermometer, it responds to canon. So we believe the church has a role, but we don't put it on the same place that Rome does. So in closing, those mentioned earlier are not the true reformers, but rather they are stewards and servants of God's reformation. The Word and the Spirit reformed the church in the 16th century and have been reforming the church ever since. The reformation, that the pre-reformation helped point the church back to Scripture and Scripture alone as the infallible authority for faith and life the Reformation isn't over, nor will it ever be over until the rapture, you know, the, the taking of the church, because Reformation, God's word and God's spirit reforming his church will not end until then, until the church is taken up by Jesus. The people of God, the church, will be always uh, be being reformed according to the unchanging word of God, not according to our ever-changing culture. Rowland Taylor was considered to be the third leading reformer in England. He suffered under Bloody Mary's reign for his faith. When he was led forth to be burned at the stake in Suffolk, he said, Good people, I have taught you nothing but God's word and those lessons that I have taken out of the Bible. And I am come hither to seal it with my blood. So my prayer is, Whenever you touch your Bible, think about these things. Have a a greater appreciation for your Bible. Treat it with reverence. Knowing about those who carried on the tradition of standing firm in the faith. That tradition. Giving, sharing, and protecting the gospel, God's message. They are willing to not just die, but to be martyred, tortured, burned at the stake for the sake of Christ and what His Word teaches. The pages in the Bible isn't just stained with Christ's blood and, and those mentioned in it, but also of, of many of those who are faithful to him, who are willing to shed their blood for it. They, as 2 Timothy 2.3 says, shared in their suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Because they too wanted you to possess and read the Bible, to have the knowledge of the love of Christ which surpasses all understanding. To be confident that God's word is true and prevails through the tests of time. To show the gospel and to know that God's love and desire for all to be saved is worth bleeding and dying for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, again want to thank you for tonight and this opportunity, Lord. I pray that uh, what we've learned tonight would uh, really resonate in us, Lord, in our hearts. And uh, may we, Lord... uh, Treat your word, treat scripture, treat this Bible that we uh, take advantage of, Lord, uh, with the reverence that it deserves, uh, and honor it, Lord, uh, knowing that uh, there was so much work, uh, so much sacrifice uh, that was done uh, in order for us to have this today. And and we know, Lord, that was all by your leading and by your spirit, and uh, we thank you, Lord, for that, and we thank you for your word, we thank you for your truth. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.